Jujuginoa. This is Charles Smith. I'm Ojibwe from the Fauna Lac Reservation, and you're listening to the Middle of the Res Road podcast. This is Joel Boje. I'm an Ojibwe from the Boys Fort Band of Chippewa Indians. This is in collaboration with the Minnesota Tribal Contractors Council, a.k.a. MNTCC, the show that is designed to be the source of information about industry job opportunities, success stories, trainings, and upcoming projects for Native Americans. We also share about our culture and language because it is the foundation of our identities. Oh. And we're back. And this time we have Kathy Benjamin. She is a Malax band member and she works in recovery over in Fargo, North Dakota, of all places. Hey, Kathy, can you uh, introduce yourself a little bit and some of the things that you do currently? Yes, my name is Kathy Benjamin, first of all. Yeah, um, gotta get that J in there. Ja. Ja. Yeah, There's ja. no R. Ja. Kathy Benjamin. <laughs> Benjamin. <laughs> Sorry, Kathy Benjamin. So, yes, my name is Kathy Benjamin. I work as a care coordinator at the F5 Project. I also am a tribal and community liaison and a house manager at a recovery living home. What's the recovery um, recovery homes? Recovery homes. Yeah. It's a sober living home uh, that we just opened up in January in Fargo. We have a men's house and a women's house. And the name? Achieve Recovery Homes. Achieve Recovery. Mm-hmm. So how did Achieve Recovery come to be? Well... So last year, we worked as teams over at the F5 project. Um, I did care coordination, and then I had a peer support specialist that we worked on the same team. Uh, his name is Ben Reiswig. What was happening is we were seeing a lot of, first it started uh, started out as women not having their own place to live. There was lots of homeless shelters down there, and a lot of them are based for men specifically. There's only one that's for women, and it's really hard to get into. So a lot of times we would have our women that would have no place to go and Ben kind of got tired of having that situation continuously happen where we had nowhere to put them. So he decided to open up a sober living home specifically for women in the beginning. Um, Once we got it up and running, we realized that men needed it just as much as the women did. So we opened up both. How many, wait, how many, um, how many clients do you house in both? So in the women's house right now, it's only four. Um, But in the men's house we have, only four, like it's a small number. I mean, compared to the men's house, it is small. So at the men's house, we have two, four, six, seven, eight. We can fit up to eight in the men's house, but the men's house is way bigger than the women's. So is it a growing um, business or? So I would what is say that? Yes. Is that an LLC or is that an Inc or is that a 501c3? What is that exactly? Right now, we're in the process of transitioning over to a 501c3. Oh, why are trans- transitioning over to a 501c3? See, that would be a Ben question. I just know that there's a lot more help and assistance when you have a 501c3 compared to what we have right now. And then you guys got to start a board and everything. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. How long have you guys been doing that? January. So do you you really don't have any really good um, numbers of... Uh, like statistics? Yeah. Not yet. We do have... So the women's house, there was a higher rate of turnover for some reason. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with, honestly, moms... I'm just going to say it. They have it a lot harder than men do, I believe, because single moms most times are the ones that are there stuck. I shouldn't say stuck with the responsibility, but that's kind of how it feels. Right. So they have to have somewhere for their kids to go. And I know for me in the beginning of my recovery, I didn't have anywhere for my kids to go. They ended up having to go to foster care. So I didn't have any kind of support. And so moms a lot of times don't have that. And most moms in the beginning aren't going to be wanting to immediately be like, yes, take my kids into foster care so I can go get help. That's not the way we see things, you know, Um, but that's kind of how they happen. And if they don't, they get stuck and they don't get to get the ability to get into the recovery services that they need. Even when it comes to treatment services down where I'm from, there's no place where moms can go with their kids. That's something we're trying to work on and something that we have in our vision for the future. 
I don't know what that looks like yet, but I think that's the reason why we have a high turnover rate for the women is because they have the responsibilities at home with their kids, so they can't come in. So you mentioned your recovery. Uh, I know it. Not everybody knows it. How long have you been in recovery? I have been in recovery since June 13th of 2016, so that's about seven and a half years. Congrats. Yeah. Let's talk a little. Congratulations. Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, like... um, What got you wanting to get sober, wanting to get clean? Like, um, and and how has your life progressed since then, you know? This is about to get deep. Yeah, Yeah. I was just going to say. Let's go. Let's go. This is what people need to know. So... My addiction, I don't, I'm not going to get too much into like the, the, the history of it, but I did start using when I was 12 years old. Um, that progressed through the years pretty heavily. I think once I turned in, once I got into my twenties, it got into heavier substances and it got to be a lot more, um, difficult. I lost my kids to foster care, um, in 2022, I want to say, um, you know, I feel like that should have been the time when I wanted to find recovery. But at the time, I didn't... Oh, I didn't. in 2022? Yeah. Wait, no. Oh, my gosh. My years are way back. Yeah. To 2014. There you go. <laughs> that sounds that sounds more legit. I was like, I couldn't imagine you losing your kids in recovery. <laughs> I, I mean, that could happen, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, but no, I'm sorry. 2014, I don't know why my years were there. But anyways, in 2014, I lost my kids to foster care. Um, but at that time, I didn't have like any self-love and I also was raised in foster care and when I was raised in foster care I remember when my mom had gotten the ability to not get me back but she did get me sent with my dad and that's when I moved over to East Lake for a while but I remember how resentful I was because the foster home that I was in um, they took care of me I had been there for two three years and that was the longest home that I had ever been in and so when I was found myself in that same situation as a mom I remembered how I felt and how I didn't want my kids to be torn from a home that they had already been placed in I didn't think I was a good enough mom to take care of my kids the way that they needed to be cared about and so that's not what got me into recovery that that didn't do it I I thought my kids were better off where they were and without me Um, and so my uh, addiction progressed again, you know, and got a lot deeper and a lot darker. Um, and what ended up happening is I ended up in jail for a while, a couple times. Um, (laughs) but that time I had stayed in jail. I had a $200 bail. You guys, it's pretty crazy. I get per cap, right? We know that. And I had it sitting there in my bank account and nobody would get me out. I couldn't, I was remember calling the banks and like trying to call them collect to get out. They were not having it. They would just hang up all the time. And I'd be like quickly trying to say it in the name part. Like I I have money in my bank. Can you help me get out? And no, It didn't work like that. Um, But while I was in there, uh, my best friend, actually, she's she's the reason why I found recovery. My my best friend, she uh, she died by suicide. And that hit me really, really hard because during the entire time of my addiction, the only person that ever reached out and legitimately cared about me was my sister. I call her my sister. She was my best friend. But um, she was always checking on me, always trying to see if I was okay, always um, begging me to get better, begging me to stop using, begging me to get my kids back. And she would try to speak life into me. But for some reason, I just was not trying to hear it. I actually became resentful towards her for caring about me, which is weird because that's all I ever wanted was for somebody to care about me. Um, And when I finally felt that, I didn't want it. Again, it was because I didn't care about myself. I ended up getting out of jail, and I went on this road of, like, trying to get clean, then using, then trying to get clean, and it would last for, like, three, four days, and the pain got to be too strong, and so I just started using again, and it was like that over and over again. But something just clicked. I was just ready. I kept thinking of the words, and I would read through the messages that my sister would send me, and I just, I had enough. I couldn't do it for my kids. I couldn't do it for myself. But for some reason, I could do it for my sister. And so I did. I went to treatment. Her birthday was June 10th, actually. And I was shooting to get clean on her birthday. It sounded great. Um, But her birthday was on a Friday, so it didn't work out that way. So I ended up getting clean on June 13th, which was a Monday, the Monday after Friday. And I've been clean ever since. Congratulations. That is a great story of hope. That's exactly what it is. And and what I think that does is that that helps other people realize their own worth that you know like you had to discover your own worth and your own values and and 
I, yeah. I, I love to hear that because it's like, man, like what I see you do now is so encouraging and yeah. empowering. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I was going to say, I missed out that on that whole part. Jeez. Recovery has been beautiful for me. Um, I think my biggest motivator for why I do what I do now, which I'll get into, is the way that I grew up. So I grew up, as I said, in foster care. So immediately, like, from birth, I was taken from my mom. My mom's white. My dad's enrolled in Mille Lacs. And I grew up separated from both of them. Um, the one town I was in the longest was this little itty bitty tiny town, um, that had no diversity to it. I was like pretty much the only colored kid that was there. And I got made fun of a lot for that. When I ended up moving back over to, um, Eastlake as a kid, it was almost like I got made fun of for being too white. And so it was really weird. I had like this, this, uh, this identity that I was unsure. I didn't know what it was. Um, and so then growing up, I still, I just, I've always struggled with that. And so when I came into recovery though, the most beautiful part was the first day I had went to inpatient treatment. I remember they were checking me in, they were getting me ready, signing all the paperwork. And then all of a sudden I heard a drum and it was like in the distance, you know? Um, but I remember saying like, what's that? And they were like, oh, that's drum. And I'm like, what do you mean that's drum? Like, what, what kind of drum? Like, what do you mean? You know, I'm at this treatment center that I thought was like so bougie and whatever. And they were like, no, we have drum ceremony. I'm like, can I go to that? And they were like, yeah, let's just finish getting you checked in. So I was like, all right, cool. And then we went in there and that's where like recovery really set in for me was like that moment when I walked in there. Like I remember walking in and them smudging me and I could just like feel the heat, not only on like my skin, but it was like on my spirit, you know, and it was something, it was different. It's, it was something that woke me up. Not long after that, they let us do like language classes and I got to learn how to introduce myself. And I remember that was like a whole nother feeling too, like just speaking the words, like I didn't know them before. Now I knew them and they, they felt different to me. And so I understood that as a Native American in recovery, I needed to know more about my culture to be able to understand myself. And I'm still on that journey. Um, and so once I, you know, got stabilized into my recovery, I started working in the recovery field because you can only keep what you have by giving it away. That's what I learned, right? That's what my program tells me. And that's what I learned to be true. Um, and so that's what I did. I started working in recovery. I did care coordination, which is essentially like, case management for people who are struggling with addiction, mental health, or reentry. I do a lot of reentry services from people um, getting out of prison. Um, and then most recently, I got the tribal and community liaison position, which is my favorite. So a little bit about that program is it's this program that we have, it's now we took it on through at the FI project. That's, that's my main place of work. And it originated out of Alaska. Um, and we got funding to be able to implement it in the prison system over in Jamestown, North Dakota. And that's a trauma informed set of curriculum that we have. And it's based off like native American culture wrapped into that trauma informed care. And we get to implement it into the prisons and it's great. <laughs> when, you know, you started your recovery journey, what steps did you have to take to put you exactly like, did you have to go to school? Did you have to go to training? Did you have to go to classes? Did you, you know, like what, what, you know, like what were the steps? Say, say if somebody wants to do that same thing that you're doing, what, what steps would they take to, to get, help them get there? I would say the first step is focusing on peer support. Peer support is so essential in so many different areas and it opens up so many doors for you. Most times I feel like to get into the recovery field, people think that you have to go to school to be a CD counselor and that's not necessarily the case. I mean, that's definitely an avenue that you can go down and it's a great one. Um, but for me and to where I've gotten now, like, yes, I did go to school. I did get my associates in liberal, in liberal arts with a social science emphasis, but that's not what has gotten me to where I'm at. Mine started out with my care coordination and peer support training. And you can do that through Minnesota. You can do that through North Dakota. I don't think there's any care coordination in Minnesota. I think that's just strictly a North Dakota thing. Um, but there's caseworkers. And that's, like I said, essentially the same thing. So starting off with that training first and then start working in treatment centers, start working in recovery homes. You know, if there's other sober living homes, that's something that you can do too. Um, and just keeping your eyes and your ears open for opportunities and never think that you're not good enough. You know what I mean? I, th I think that was one of my biggest fears in the beginning. And it's something I still struggle with, but what was this? I don't know the quote verbatim, but it was something like, go ahead and sit at that table 
that you don't feel like you should be able to sit at. That table wouldn't be there if you weren't meant to sit at it. It's like if you see it, go sit at it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Education. Yeah. That's what it is. So what do you think about, so you, you were discussing some of the things that you struggled with growing up, identity specifically. And so how much with identity, with not knowing, with knowing that you were Indian in a primarily white community and then knowing that when you went back home for the short stint that you did in East Lake and everybody thought you were white, how much did that mess you up? And how much does, does that still affect you today? It's still hard. It's still really hard. So recently, so at the maids conference, that's where I met Charlie. Um, the first year that I went there, it was just online. And I remember how, I don't know. I just remember how amazing it was to be able to be in a conference, which is something I did for the certifications that I had for the CEUs that I had to do. Um, it was just so amazing to see everything was so culturally based. And so all of a sudden I was just like opened up to it. Right. The next year we got to go in person and that was even better. I remember going into the college and seeing like all the language and all the like informational posters about the culture. And I was just like, this is amazing. Everywhere I looked, there was something that was there. And that was something I'm not used to where I'm from. It's that's not there at all. Like you, you don't, you don't see that at all in Fargo Moorhead. Um, and I remember, super cool, super cool story. I remember I was walking down the hallway after Charlie had uh, did his language class and he taught us a way to pray about something. And I, and I took that lesson immediately. I went outside and I prayed the way that he had taught us to pray. And um, when I came inside, I was walking down the hallway and this girl stops me, this older lady. And she says, are you Kathy Benjamin? And I was like, yes, that was so weird. And I'm like, how did you know that? And she says, are you Frank Benjamin's daughter? And then I start crying right away because I'm like, how did you know that? Like, yeah, yeah, I am. And and she starts like crying and she's like, I'm your way. And I'm like, what? And I had just learned what that word meant because of Charlie <laughs> in that class that I just had. And so I didn't even know that I had had a name. So that's one, that's one of the first things. I had no idea that I had an Ojibwe name at all. Like I had gotten another one on my own um, when I first got into recovery, but I didn't know that there was one already there for me. Um, so then that opened up the doorway to start going into these drum ceremonies that we have. And so was that last year was the first time going to them. And now I've gone to several. Um, but that part that we're talking about that I struggle with when I go there, I still feel out of place. It's like, I know it's my place, but just because I was raised away, like everybody else knows everybody there. Nobody knows me. So when I walk in, I'm just like, Oh, like, I feel like everyone's staring at me. Like, who is this girl? What is she doing here? But that's not, on them that's a me thing and that's because of stuff that I've struggled with since I was a kid not feeling like I belonged because of what we just talked about like being the white girl here being the Indian girl over here or just never like you know and I was constantly moved from one home to the next to the next school to this to there where I was always the new person and so it's almost like a it's like a trauma response that I have now it has nothing like those things are probably not anything that anybody is thinking it's a me thing and so it's something I'm still working on um, but like I said with the opportunity, like go sit at the table anyways. And that's what I do, you know? So. And even, I don't know, even for myself, when I go to drum ceremonies, even being connected to as many people that I'm connected to at those ceremonies, sometimes I still feel out of place, even though I know. So, but what make, what settles me down the most is when those, when I get to dance, especially like last night I was in, in Hayward, Lakota Ray for their ceremonial dance and my favorite dance mm -hmm. out there. And I just love going to that dance because you, as, as men, you get to dance so much at this, at this particular dance. And, but being connected to some of the people there, it's easy. It's easier for me to be connected to some of the people there, but then seeing the community and knowing that they all know each other at the same time and that I'm, I'm still an outsider. I'm still a visitor so, like, when you go to Mille Lacs, I'm sure you can't do it. I mean, but they kind of treat you like a visitor, too, at the same time, because I've been down there when when we've ate at dinner, and they put you up there first. <laughs> so, for people that don't know what happens at these ceremonies, we, 
at the times that we eat, if it's breakfast or dinner, um, and in some ceremonies they even have a lunch. But at these times that we have a feast, we go out there, offer our tobacco, and then we come back. And what they end up doing is they send up visitors first and elders. And so every, everywhere I go, I get sent up first, one of the first people. And I'm, I'm not bashful anymore. I'm not shy. I'm not Indianish, as yeah. they say. And I just go right up there because I know everyone's waiting for me to get, and all the other visitors waiting for me to, and everyone else to get done eating and so they can go get their own food. But I've seen... I've even seen in Malax that they send you up first. I like to think it's because I drive from far away. That's how I look at it. <laughs> yeah, we figured out last guess, night that it's two and a half hours only. So only? Really? No, no, no. It was like three. Three? Yeah. Three. Yeah, Let me a, have that like, half hour back. Yeah, that's a long ways. <laughs> that is a long ways. <laughs> that yeah, is. It is. And so I know this story. I know... I don't know everything that is done. I've never asked. Uh, but what is it like building a relationship with, say, somebody like your Neeb or Wabashkibanesh, Joe, Nekwanebi? What's it like? Yeah, what's, what, what has it done for you? And for people that don't know those two, uh, David Abbott is a East Lake elder. He's a first language speaker. One, uh, He's one of my favorite speakers out there in Minnesota and Joe Nekwinebi, he's a first language speaker, Vietnam veteran, and uh, former chemical dependency coordinator or Mm -hmm. director. And he's just one, he's one of the best people that you could ever meet. So developing those type of relationships, what has that done for you in the last year? Well, it's done a lot. Um, It's intimidating, for sure. Um, but that's where I've learned how and where to grow inside myself is pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. Someone told me the other week that in order to grow, you need to inconvenience yourself, inconvenience yourself from your daily, um, schedule, your daily, what you would usually do in a day. Uh, and so that's what I've done a lot. And it's, and with Joe, it's really amazing. Cause now when, so before, the very first time, it's actually every time I walk in that building, every time I'm like, oh, like I just like, I get like nervous and like almost scared to walk in. I don't know why. Again, that's a me thing. But whenever I walk in and I see Joe, I'm like, oh, I feel comfortable actually. And I go up and he smiles and he remembers me and then he invites me to the next one. And same thing with Neeb. Like when I see him before, I was like super intimidated by that one. I don't know why I just was. Um, but when I see him too, I feel comfortable. Like I've seen him at other drum ceremonies that are not in Mille Lacs, like over in White Earth. And like when I see him there, I'm like, oh, okay. Again, I feel comfortable. Um, and it's done a lot for me on the inside. Like I, I don't have as many phone conversations with them as I, as I would like to, which maybe that's a goal that I have leaving here today. Another way to, to push myself into an uncomfortable space. Cause it's hard just to call someone up and have like a random conversation, but it's doable. And every time you do that, you learn something, you know, I talk to, um, my aunt Brenda and I do that with her every once in a while or candy. That's my way. I do that with her every very, it's not as often I would like to do it more. Um, but I do learn a lot every time I do it. And that's more than what a lot of people are out there doing. I mean, some people take that relationship very seriously you know the person that names you you stay in constant communication with them or you try to and then sometimes you can't and that's okay well and I think what it is is I'm learning what that relationship is supposed to look like now I didn't know that because that's part of the, the 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 stuff that I had struggled with being disconnected from home is I didn't know those things that come so naturally to everybody else like that's not a natural thing for me it's not an, a normal thing, so to speak, um, but I'm learning it to be now. And that's what I want to change for my kids too. You know, like my kids have their names, but we grow up in a, we grow up in an area where it's like, we call it like, it's like an urban area too still. Um, so we have Lakota, Dakota, Ojibwe. So they have their names um, from people that we go to ceremony with that are Lakota. But now I'm getting closer over to here that I want them to get their Ojibwe names now. And that's something I want them to to understand to be normal 
that's what I'm trying to raise them into being is the things that I didn't get. I want them to have, especially culturally speaking. And having, um, you know, being friends for a year or so now, I mean, you've made me a better teacher and you've, you've really opened my eyes to what it's like working with someone who is disconnected, but in Ojibwe at the same time and wanting to learn. So we've had plenty of conversations. We've had plenty of arguments uh, about everything from spirituality to versus, no, it's not spirituality. It's our, our way of life and names and everything under the sun, basically. Basically. And, um, no, but... You you recover out loud, and that's what I I really appreciate about about you and you and Joel. Both of you recover out loud, and working with you two, especially trying to help teach people more about the culture, teach people more about the the language and how it's a, how it's enhanced my life in the best of ways. And then hearing your guys' struggles, it's really helped. It's helped me become a better teacher to be able to connect with people who are disconnected or maybe people who just haven't had those teachings. But then, I don't know, he throws some humdingers out there once in a while. And, <laughs> like we were coming back from, um, we were coming back from Boys Fort the other day and he tells me about this rock and I still have to give him tobacco for teaching me about this rock that's up there. But there's... And at the same time, people just have to, what I really appreciate about learning the language and culture is people just have to trust their own knowledge too at the same time mm. and just live with it and expand and keep growing and, you know, because we all know something. Yeah. That's uh, one of the main things I that I really learned about culture is is, you know, like when you're doing ceremony, when you're doing... Um, prayers when you're doing all these different things you know like like if it's done from your heart who's going to tell you that's wrong I mean if mm -hmm. you're doing it to the best of your knowledge best of your ability and it's all out of love and self-love and love for what you're praying for and it, it, it's like that's the right way to do it and mm -hmm. and I don't see you know like I don't see anybody telling you hey you're doing it wrong yeah I mean there used to be a lot of that I think like back when I was like younger in my younger days there used to be a lot of no it ain't it ain't like mm -hmm. that you ain't supposed to do it like that but but you know as as the culture progressed and uh, more people are are aware of it and in, in using the culture and in, in our own um, Ojibwe you know, like, 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 that's what we're, you know, that's what we're practicing. And, and, you know, like the teachers today are just like, that's how they know it. Mm -hmm. And so it's being more easy going about it and that they're doing it out of love. They're doing it out of kindness, generosity. And it, and it's like, when you, when you do it that way, I, I don't think there's a wrong way to do it. You know, like as long as that you're doing it the best you can. And that's, you know, Charlie kind of taught me that too, you know, like, yeah. Do it how you understand it and do it out of love. One of the first. Asian is the dot taman. In Ojibwe, that's the way you say that. And Majigwanea, she's connected to to Boys Fort, and he's the one, that, one of the elders that really taught me that is when we're doing ceremonies or when we're even learning about who we are as a people or as individuals in, in Ojibwe society. Asian that means the way you understand it. Mm. And it's one of the best things that I really believe. I really, I mean, I mean, I'm sharing that right now. I mean, it's something that I live with, something that I carry on and something that I really truly think about is it has to be done through your own lens so that you, because you might see something differently. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was racing and I love racing. I love being out on the lake. There's nothing like it. Uh, it's one of the places that I feel more Ojibwe than than any other time, except for being at ceremonial drums. At ceremonial dances, uh, you you just can't not feel connected and being truly Ojibwe at those ceremonies. But being out there on the rice lakes, doing something that you know people have done for thousands and thousands of years 
And then I had told somebody, I hope my son sees everything that I see out on the lake or see out on the river when I'm collect- when I'm getting rice, my nomenike on. And so they said to me, what if he sees more than you? And I was like, dang, <laughs> that's that Asian-ness of Taman. Like, he might, the way he views it, the way he understands it, he might actually see more than I do. Because how can I, how can I as an individual dictate or even decide how much he sees out there or anybody else maybe everybody else sees more than I do and I just get a little glimpse of it and I really truly think it's remarkable Mm. and just the way I see it I always like the sounds the sounds of it that the 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 right like because I was always a polar and you can hear it yeah hitting a hitting a canoe you can hear the rice splashing on the canoe it was it, it man it, to this day i haven't been racing in like 20 years and i could still remember mm. the sound that's how connected you know i continue to be to it and it's like why don't i go out more and why don't i do that stuff more and so it's like just what charlie's talking about right there it's like i want to go <laughs> i really want to go now have you ever been never been one day one day maybe next fall okay there we go. What else have you done out there? Or you were saying something, I cut you off, but I was thinking about Asian Isidotaman as he was talking. Oh, I was, I was just thinking of the first, one of the first teachings that I got while I was still in treatment when it, come, when it comes to cultural stuff that like we were just talking about, and that was that nobody's wrong. No, nobody's ever wrong. Kind of like it was the entire conversation we just had. That's what it wraps up to be is that nobody's wrong in every way that somebody learns something is their truth to them. Um, and so that's where I learned two years, one mouth. You know, I can go somewhere and if I do it this way, even if somebody tells me I'm wrong, it's like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to listen. Unless it's Charlie. I just like to argue with Charlie specifically. <laughs> Unless he tells me I'm wrong. Yes. <laughs> Honesty. That's honest. Her truth. Else. <laughs> I'm going to listen. <laughs> No, yeah, you just remember <laughs> when you're pointing one finger at me, you know. I had them three, all pointing this way this time. Three going back. <laughs> <laughs> I had them all out on the table. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Even, even, even in my arguments with Charlie, I still will go sit and I'll think about it. Even though I'm probably festering about it at first, I will think about it, and eventually, like 90% of the time, I still will take in what he says, and I will be like, okay, I'm going to try it because. Why having a closed mind is going to get me nowhere in life, right? And so even though what people might tell me to do is going to be irritating, I made like a promise to myself in the beginning of my recovery that I'm always going to try to do what people tell me to do. And if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. Then it's a lesson learned. But if it does work, it's also a lesson learned. So no matter what, I'm going to get something out of it, you know? Um, But yeah. Being unapologetically Ojibwe, your favorite saying Oh, I was like, is that what you're telling me? Because that would be the biggest compliment no. you've ever said to me. Well, <laughs> you are, yeah. And that is a compliment. It's, well, if he's telling me that, I don't know if he's telling me that or using that as I don't know himself. he was looking at you. He's looking for an argument. <laughs> no, I'm not. On air. No, we could get an argument oh, on air. Man. I think it'd be awesome. They'd love that. Being unapologetic, unapo- unapologetically Ojibwe, I just know so many people who work from that mind frame all the time. Like everybody I, I end up working with, if it's... If it's people I work with uh, at the language center, if it's people that I um, that are my friends that are doing ceremonies that are working for different tribal organizations or even doing ceremonies on their own, we all kind of end up being unapologetically Ojibwe or always working from an Ojibwe perspective. And I, what what I appreciate about our arguments. <laughs> When we do get an argument, in, in, in an argument, that you help me work on delivery, <laughs> delivery of information. <laughs> this is how this is how us as Ojibwe people think of this. This is how it might sound to people when I initially say, it, or when we initially say it, because I tend to repeat um, things that the way it's been explained to me. And then I can see how it affects somebody who's disconnected. 
And then having your perspective has helped, you know, ease that delivery. But then at the same time, I sometimes I just throw it out there. Just throw it out there. Just chucks it. Doesn't throw it. He chucks it at you. (laughs) But no, and and a lot of it has to do with you know for the you know what sucks about all of it is people not knowing their language because mm-hmm. a lot of these things have been taught to me in Ojibwe from our elders or from my friends who are who are second language speakers and then they share with me what they've learned and what they've learned from their elders and and it just sounds better in Ojibwe it doesn't sound like in English, we can tend to sound say, "Hey, this is this way, and there's no, this is it. You have to accept it." But when we hear it in Ojibwe, it just sounds better. You should try this, or you. Uh, this is the way we view it as Ojibwe people, and I I think that really helps. And we just have to, as as we progress and and continue to carry our our ways and our language and our culture that we just have to find a better way to share that instead of just chucking at people. Yeah. I'm hitting not, them over the head yeah. with it. I'm, I'm, I'm big with talk with me. Don't talk at me. You talk at me. I feel like you're telling me to do something and my pride shuts my ears off when that happens. Don't tell me how to do something. So that's the arguments that we get into. And yeah, if you, if you, if you tell me in a softer way, I'm, I'm more likely to listen to you. But then I end up listening anyways, because <laughs> of my rule. Because of my rule. Because of my rule, not yours. <laughs> you, you just did a whole loop right there. <laughs> you were pretty, pretty firm there at first, but then you kind of got softer. As that's how I from. am. That's but you know, that's that's the Ojibwe in you. <laughs> no, it's I bring it back to it's, I'm just uh, I'm a really prideful person sometimes, but that's where I go back to my own lesson. That mm-hmm. one I just said that lesson. I'm gonna try something once. I just want to fight him on it first, yeah. just to just so he knows. I, I don't it. have to listen. I do, the same thing. I do the same thing. So when you tell me I'm wrong or when you say not wrong, but I could deliver that better, I really do sit back and think about it because, I don't know, we were having that, this discussion last week. And I was telling you about my favorite artist, and I even showed you part of that podcast. But what One thing that Trent Reznor uh, is one of my favorite artists. He's the guy behind Nine Inch Nails, and... He said when he went into recovery, he he realized that he doesn't know everything. And because I'm in recovery and because I know I don't know everything, and I'm, I don't know, you people can say I have a huge ego or prideful, but I, I truly, I as, a, as an individual, I'm truly humble. I'm truly grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be here on the podcast. And who would have thought I ever would have got picked to be a host on a podcast and to have conversations with amazing people week in, week out. And I would have never thought that I would, this is something that I shouldn't be here right now. And, and then to understand that I don't know everything. So when I'm, especially from a recovery point of view, when you tell me or when Joel tells me or when somebody has a, has a is in disagreement of what I've shared. I sit back and think, did I really make a mistake, or did I should I really work on trying to do this better or deliver this message better? Because I don't want to do more. I don't know. I always think of the language and culture. I don't want to do more damage than there already exists with people with identity issues. I don't want to be the person that says something wrong or says something harsh to somebody and then they never learn language or never learn our culture because mm-hmm. yeah. working with elders, man, the elders beat me up. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it was the way I was raised. My dad is a Vietnam veteran. My dad is a Marine and it was his way or the highway some days with some of the things that he taught us. This is the way that you're going to do it. I want to see it done exactly like this. And not saying that's a bad thing. It really taught me to mimic some of the things that he wanted to instill in us. 
And so I appreciate that. And but working with somebody who is a Vietnam veteran who has PTSD, who had, who is a Marine and then my best friend and most caring individual that I know along with my mother, you know, just trying to, I don't know, working with somebody like that, knowing that the elders really do care, knowing that if they weren't giving me shit, that they were, that they really do want to teach me this language. They really do want to teach me this culture. What they may have said might've been harsh. The way they said it might've been even harsher. And, but if they didn't want to share it with me, they wouldn't have. I like that. It's pretty deep. I'm still thinking about it now. <laughs> I got to think about it. I'm, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to listen to this episode so I can hear that again. <laughs> We're just gonna have to do reels. Yeah, and put it we, on Facebook, and that's why I was telling Ricky and Lou, and maybe Kathy can give us some feedback. For our podcast, do you think we should do reels of like short, I don't know, some of the good things that somebody really says, mm-hmm. put them out there as individual clips? Yeah. It's a lot easier to remember a shorter clip than it is a longer one. I, so I, much information I really through. like what you said about your recovery and how you got there. And that's like. Because that's a good that's, sh- yeah, that's short. Fascinating. Like, man, that clip. kept me like fully you know you yeah. got my full attention the whole time you were talking and i was like that'd be a really good clip you know <laughs> it really nice. would be like it's a beautiful story of hope yeah you know losing everything and and rising back up yeah and look at where you're at today man that's very admirable you know like in how you live even your social media life and your real life it's like in the amount of people that you're inspiring and you're helping. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you probably don't even know a lot of them people. And that's how recovery works is a lot of people I don't even know are watching yeah. and, and they're watching my journey and, and kind of what, you know, I'm doing with my recovery and stuff. And, and hopefully, you know, uh, they can take that back oh. and, and use part of that journey to help their relatives or help mm-hmm. their people or, and and, it, and it's just unbelievable how many people reach out to you, isn't it? Just it to, is. I have just a lot about yeah, yeah about recovery yeah. questions and how you got to where you're at, and yeah, and, and that's amazing. That, I was even yeah, I was just telling Charlie, I tell him that quite a bit. Like it's amazing how many times people reach out to me a week in just a week, because I'm loud and proud about my job position at F5. I'm loud and proud about my new job position with the Tribal and Community Liaison. I'm really loud and proud about my um, position at Achieve Recovery Homes. I'm really loud and proud about my recovery, about losing my kids to foster care, about being open and honest about how I used to be an abusive mother. Like those things that are hard to speak on, and then the other parts of my life, like people are always reaching out to me, and I love that and that's what recovering out loud does is it helps people understand the truth of situations and that there's ways to get out of it and ways to reach out for help and then you turn around and share it and then it's just like a ripple effect and i like that i like that when you always post with your kids and stuff like that man that's you know like that's like and that's attainable for for any addict out there in active use and that's what we got to make we got to make that point that active use ain't the end it's like you know once you put that down that's when your life really begins and your life will really get better and and you know like that's the proof yeah you know like you are the proof you know charlie's the proof yeah that that you know like we don't have to live that way we don't have to be stuck in that lifestyle that there is life after active use and active alcoholism it's yeah. like, you know, the, that's proof. Yes. The, the new proof that I'm starting to see now is how my recovery is imprinting on my children. Mm-hmm. So I have two of my nieces that I adopted and then I have, um, my oldest son's four. So I have 18, 16, 14, eight and six. <laughs> Lots of kids, right? So starting from the 18-year-old, like I've had her for four years, her sister as well. They grew up how I grew up, and honestly, maybe even a little bit, maybe a lot more 
uh, difficult than what I grew up in. And it's amazing to see that, and you that's know, not, that's not saying anything short of how you grew up because mm, I heard you. that story. <laughs> thank you. A number of times. So if that's worse, that's, that's yeah. even more horrible. Well, think of it this times. way. So when I was in foster care, I was in and out from the age of one up until seven. Um, they were up in and out up from age one to 14. And a lot of times they didn't get to stay in foster homes. They went to group homes, which is a whole nother level. Uh, but what I'm getting at though is, you know, my, I, I call her my daughter now. She came to me when she was 14 and she had already been using, you know, that's where she was already at in life. And it's so amazing. And I don't want to tell too much of her story, but it's so amazing that even at 18 years old, she knows when to reach out for help. So unfortunately that cycle already touched her, but she already knows what to do to get help. You know, then I look at the 16-year-old and it's the same way. And then I look at the 14-year-old. And and for him, like, I started using when I was 12 years old. I started doing a lot of things when I was 12 years old. I look at my 14-year-old and he's, I don't want to say he's innocent, but, like, he's innocent in terms of, like, he's never used. He's never done those things. Then I look at my 8-year-old and my 8-year-old will sit there and tell you what drugs are. He'll tell you that alcohol is a drug. He'll tell you that his mom and dad are addicts. He'll tell you that he can't use, and he'll tell you that he'll never use. We don't know if that's true or not, but the fact that he knows that at eight years old is amazing. And even my six-year-old knows what drugs are because I'm completely open and honest with them about where I was at in life, about what it did for me, about the troubles that it brought for me. They know that they were in foster care. They know that mom made bad choices. They know that I was in jail. I'm completely transparent with my kids about recovery because I want them to know all of it so that way they can make an informed decision of their own one day when that situation arises for them. But it's just amazing to see the recovery trickle down into each one of my kids. And this, that, those real conversations, it's a reflection of not only our community but the epidemic within this country. I'll speak on, say, for this country. I don't know about the rest of the world, but truly an epidemic of people who are addicts or are in active addiction. I don't want to, I just want people to know it's not a reflection just on our Native communities. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a struggle everywhere. Yeah. You see it every week. I mean, if if any anyone could go to a, uh, NA meeting or AA meeting or anything that has rec has to do with recovery related, you'll see there's every group of people that has been affected by addiction. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, Al-Anon. Yeah. Al-Anon's a huge one. Like if you've never been an addict, but you have people in your family or your spouse or your partner or your children, it, it, it gives you a better idea on how to be able to help them on a better level and how to be able to understand what what they're going through. So I, I think Al-Anon's a huge one for um, a lot of families, especially if you have addiction and alcoholism in your family, but you're not yeah. um, plagued by that disease. I think I related more. When I was in jail, you go to, you go to all the groups. Anything you can get out of yourself or you go to the groups. <laughs> like you just go. Um, and Al-Anon was one of them. And I remember going to Al-Anon and relating more to Al-Anon than I did to the other 12-step groups. So that was pretty cool to, to see that. And it's like, because I, I, I think that most, I think it's fair to say that most people who turn out to be addicts or alcoholics, however you identify, um, grew up in that cycle with all demographics, like you were saying. But so Al-Anon really, I feel like register. If everybody got the chance to go into Al-Anon and, and see what that literature looks like, I feel like a lot of people would, would relate to that more than they would think. And, you, man, you touched on so many different things. And just that last bit that you were talking about, even the historical trauma, trauma within our Native communities, and that's really specific because I don't think a lot of people, especially people that, because part of this podcast, we try to reconnect people in the industry with Native people so that they can work better with Native people. Mm -hmm. Then we try to work connect Native people with people in industry, all different types of industry. If, it, if it's, if it's um, laborers, unions, if it's people who are doing... Um, any type of career, career yeah, construction, uh, energy, 
transporting energy, any of it. Um, so, but I don't think people understand the, some of those, some of the people in industry might not specifically understand some of the things that you were bringing up about the historical trauma or trauma within our native communities. You were mentioning that the two oldest mm-hmm. kids between one and 14, they were in foster care mm-hmm. in group homes. And that, that That's a real thing that, that happens in our native communities. And then you being in foster care and foster care only and then out of foster care that's a real thing and and then it leads to us trying to figure out who we are and tend to i don't know i don't know why we tend to pick the the worst way of getting to who we are sometimes but it happens it happens a lot more it seems like it happens a lot more than somebody saying hey this was a messed up situation i'm going to make the best out of it and then i'm going to go on from there but it seems like hey, we want to punish ourselves a little bit more. Yeah, and, and you carry, carry that. Yeah, well, yeah that's carry where you that. find your wisdom. I mean, yeah. that's if you just took an easy road, an easy plain paved road all the way somewhere, like where's the lessons in that? Yeah. Do, would you pref- honestly, and, go ahead. Yeah, that's a, the talk that we had, you know, like people that have never been through the things that we we've actually been through and endured, you know, like with the alcoholism and addictions and stuff like that. It's like, what do they do? Yeah. You know, do, do, do they get to go to these meetings? Do they get to go to these fellowships? Do they get to go to these different places and connect with people and, and build true friendships up? Yeah. True, like relationships, you know, like, and, and it's this, uh, do they get to sit there and learn about themselves like every day? Yeah, you yeah. know, like are are you know like it, it's like are they just sitting at home comfortable in their own skin, not being around anybody? <laughs> you know? so it's just like happy too. Yeah, yeah. Like me and Charlie had that conversation before, and I've I've actually heard him say it, and and I was like. I'm actually really grateful for for what we do and how we do things and even yeah. even what I do for work and what I do with my free time, you know, and we shared that up at a meeting up at Fortune Bay that, you know, when we go to work and we get done, it's like the job still isn't done, yeah. you know, because now I still got to, you know, like go out there and help other people and and try to work with the community, go to meetings and, and it's like, so it, it's 24 hour a day job, you know I mean? It, but, but half of it isn't a job. It's doing what I love to do. Yes. Even at work, it's like, I'm uh-huh. doing what I love to do. And, and that's where I encourage people do what you love to oh, do. Like when, language. <laughs> when, when, when you get into like a, a, a position of work, it's like, is that what you love to do? Yeah. Cause then it, it, it's like, it's not like work and then you're mm-hmm. actually getting paid for that. So it's like yeah. when picking out a career, make sure it's something that you love and something you're inspired by and something, you know, that, that you're worthy of doing. Yep. I mean, that's, that's a huge thing and that's a huge goal. And that's what I, you know, coming into the podcast, that's, you know, like that was my hope to encourage people to find things that they love to do. Yeah. Or see what, um, we had Jennifer Smith here a couple of weeks ago. She's the tribal engagement manager for Enbridge on the Wisconsin side. And she had said that when she applied for Enbridge that she looked at the core values of the company and they matched with hers. And that's why mm-hmm. she applied and that's why she started working for them. And so I think about that, think about what you're saying. I don't disagree. If you can find something that you love to do, that's perfect that's awesome and better you know great for you that you got to find that and I got to find that with working in language but the rest of that the rest of the the stuff that I have to put up with I don't necessarily love about my job I wish I didn't have to pay the bills I wish I didn't have to <laughs> yeah. nobody loves that. that I wish I didn't have to go in front of the um a tribal council I wish I didn't have to um explain to people why saving our language is truly important. Uh, I wish I didn't have to explain to people why we need our culture within our organization to be living and vibrant and people participating and learning about it 
to better ourselves and better ourselves as human beings. I wish I didn't have to do the rest of that stuff. I wish I could just focus on the language because that's truly my passion. But at the same time, I think people should, I mean, I do it on a daily, embrace the suck of some things. Because if you can't, if you can't do that, uh, I don't think you can truly grow or get to the next steps. And you do that, both of you do that a lot. You embrace things that suck. Even if you don't want to do it, you do it anyways. And it pays off because it, it has paid off for everyone that, you know, in this room right now. It has paid off for us to embrace the suck and put up with something that we don't like. We got to do it anyways. And then we get on the other side of that. Yeah. It's the sacrifices you make for your passion. Because same thing with my job. That's better put. My I job, like <laughs> I love that I get to help people. I love when I get to be there with somebody I'm working with and they achieve a goal. Like, I love being there. But the parts that suck of my job is when I'm working with somebody that has evictions, that has bad credit, that has um, a drug history anything like that it sucks to be with them when they are going to apply for apartments and they're getting denied and they're getting denied and they're getting denied and they're getting denied I had this one girl that got denied last winter every single month and she slept in her car and I remember there was several times where like I shed tears over that and that sucked Mm -hmm. that's the part about my job that I don't like to do however eventually once it got to summer she finally got in her own place That right there fueled me for months. That one scenario where somebody came out on top finally after being below for so long. That's the passion part. So the sacrifices was it sucked. It it didn't suck meeting with her. It sucked meeting with her and her not getting the services that she needed from other people. And I kept trying to help and I kept trying to help and I kept trying to help and it hurt every single time. But the end, it paid off. It's the sacrifices for the passion. It is. It really is. And working a long, hard, strenuous day, it's like I I didn't like doing it, walking around 30 below, 20 below weather, you know, out there just laboring, you know. But but the end of the day, I was like, wow. Getting sunburnt in negative 20 degrees. Yeah, it, it, it built, it built, it built my own values. It built my own, you know, like, wow, like, you know, like I am able to do this, I, yeah. you know, and, and it's like, I'm not a young man. I'm not 20, but it's, it, 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 it's no, it, it's like, I'm 25, <laughs> but walking around out there and, and watching these, you know, 20 and early 30 year olds just struggle with the job and, and, and I'm still, still right there, you know, doing it right with them. It, it, it makes me feel good about me. Yeah. Like, like, wow, you know, I, I can still do this. And I mean, I don't know where I'll be 20 more years from now. I mean, probably, but, but you know, I, I, today I can still do it and that's what matters. As they say in Fargo a lot, everybody needs a Kathy and <laughs> I love it. that's what they say over there. Right? I'm not lying. They do say that. And, uh, <laughs> Kathy, as we wrap up this episode of middle of the res road. Can you tell us what you're going to be doing or if are you going to be doing any, any conferences? Are you talking anywhere that where somebody might be able to catch you? Speaker. Do you have like a famous handle that somebody might be able to reach you out at? Reach out at? Just Kathy Benjamin on Facebook, man. It's as real as it gets on there. I'm going to tell you all the things I do wrong, all the things I Tried to do right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm and sure Charlie calls you if you're not. <laughs> yeah, but I don't actually right now have any speaking events lined up. I feel like it hasn't been. It's it's been pretty dry lately. But we'll get that changed. Yeah, maybe you gotta uh, do a Facebook live or something, you know, and throw Charlie on there and you know tell a yes. little bit of your story, you know, and Charlie could. Ask you some questions or no. get under your skin. No. Or <laughs> yeah, we can make it interesting. <laughs> you would make it interesting. <laughs> dig underneath. <laughs> Kathy, uh, thank you for coming on. Hey, you are got to come back because we only scratched the surface on this one. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you have so much, you didn't even talk about F5. 
Oh, I know the heart, and, my heart. <laughs> but you got you, you set it up to talk for the, about F five energy recovery and some of the things that you're doing outside of that. And yeah, and I think that's important to you know like get to know you a little bit, and next time we'll we'll dig a little deeper. Well, maybe next time I'll be a little bit more prepared, except for you know knowing that I'm going to be here 15 minutes before I'm here. Hey, so. you agreed to it. <laughs> I Did he offer you tobacco? The Ojibwe? Dang. Oh. Dang. <laughs> Kathy, I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Kathy. Congratulations on your seven and a half years and everything that you're doing with your life today. That's uh, very inspiring and just a very valuable life that you live. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for being interested enough to have me here to speak on it. I do appreciate it, and I appreciate people listening in too. Oh, wait, wait, so now. <laughs>